Chapter 8, Teach the Children. It does little good in the long run to be an excellent financial manager if you do not impart some of your knowledge and values to the next generation. Children will generally adopt, at least initially, the philosophies of their parents. Coaching along the way as teaching moments arise will solidify those values. Remember that your actions speak louder than words. If they sense that you are personally disciplined and in control, they will be more likely to adopt similar good habits as they mature. In order to teach children about money, they need to have some. So what is the best way to do that? Most parents start youngsters on an allowance, but beware, there are many ways to implement an allowance, some better than others. Suppose we look at a few ideas to get started. Where to begin? Young children as early as age five can learn about basic financial concepts by receiving an allowance from their parents. The first lesson they should probably learn is tithing. Embracing the concept of accountability to God is easy for young children. Also, if they're paying tithing, is a lifelong habit, it will not be difficult to continue as they reach maturity. In addition to paying their own tithing regularly, plan to take all your children to tithing settlement each year. They need to know that you have a testimony of this principle and that you pay tithing faithfully, just as you and the Lord expect of them. Tithing settlement is an excellent time to bear testimony of the Lord's blessings in your life that will certainly be apparent to faithful tithe payers. Do not miss this teaching opportunity for your children. Another concept they can learn at a very early age is savings. This is another worthwhile habit that if started early will continue into adulthood. When saving for a specific purpose, such as a mission, they will enjoy watching their savings grow over time. In primary, they are singing, I hope they call me on a mission, and at home they are saving for their mission every week. What do you think the chances are of their actually going on a mission if they have been saving for this goal since they were five years old? We found that a savings bank with three separate compartments was a handy way to deal with our children's allowance. Learning a little bit of math in the process as they calculated the percentages for tithing and mission savings is a bonus. My memory is slightly cloudy on the actual percentages that we used for savings, but this is what I would recommend. Tithing 10%, mission savings 20%, other savings 20%, personal spending 50%. You might as well get them used to that 50% pizza early on. A practical but amazingly helpful suggestion is to give them their allowance in increments that they can divide up for these purposes. Example, 10 times rather than, for example, 10 dimes rather than a dollar bill. Whenever allowance was doled out in our family, typically during a family council on the first Sunday of the month, the savings banks were brought out and funds were deposited according to the agreed percentages every time. Children will enjoy learning how to calculate the percentages, but you will need to keep sufficient change in coins on hand so that the percentages will work out. The amount of allowance is less important than the principle of regularly allocating the correct percentage to tithing, savings, and personal spending. Periodically, the tithing compartment from each bank was emptied out and a tithing slip was prepared for each child. Children learn by doing. When they participate in the process, it is an enjoyable experience for all. For mission savings, we added an additional bonus. The suggested allocation was 20% of all their allowance and later earnings, but if they elected to, they could add more to their mission savings account voluntarily. The incentive was that up until their 16th birthday, at the end of each year we would match dollar for dollar the full amount they were able to save during that year toward their mission. If they elected to add more than the recommended 20%, their fund would grow even faster due to matching funds. This method was designed as a parallel example of how the Lord blesses our efforts when we practice obedience and self-discipline. 
Matching our children's mission savings built the nest egg faster in the early years, and they consequently enjoyed the benefit of compound interest over a longer period of time. It also helped them reach the goal faster so that by the time they were in their prime earning years as teens, they could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Four of our six children served full-time missions. All six had saved enough for their missions by the time they were old enough to go. But two of our daughters found their sweetheart at age 20, so they began a different and equally important mission. Our children's other 20% savings was discretionary. They were free to save up for anything they wanted to buy to teach them the value of saving for a goal. The remaining 50% could be spent immediately on anything they chose to buy, or they could elect to save part or all of that as well. When a child is young, a small amount of money is sufficient to teach the principles and calculate the percentages. After all, what is a five-year-old going to buy? It is probably a good idea to increase the allowance each year on their birthday, like getting a raise. So far, so good, but this next part is genius. Allowance the dole. When you give your children money, even if you tell them it is for helping around the house, it is really a handout. The next important lesson they need to be taught at the right age is that we eat bread by the sweat of our face, not by taking handouts. I learned this trick from my father, and I believe it is the best way to teach this principle to your children. It is simply this. All allowance stops when they become teenagers on their 13th birthday. You cut them off from the dole completely. Of course, you need to give them plenty of notice, but the rationale is this. When they are old enough to bring in money from odd jobs, babysitting, yard work, etc., then they are too old to be on the dole. Initially, there will be resistance to this policy. That is why you need to give them years of notice in advance so there are no surprises. It is even more difficult for the older ones to accept when their younger siblings are still getting handouts. But hold firm. I'm getting to the magic. What happens when they get cut off but they still have ongoing financial needs? They get busy looking for ways to earn money. As young adults, every one of our children thanked us for cutting off their allowance and teaching them how to earn money on their own. They had far more money than their friends who were still getting allowance from their parents. You see, they were able to recognize, even as teenagers, that had they continued receiving an allowance, meager as it was, they would have figured out a way to eke out a survival existence on that small handout. By having it cut off entirely, they were motivated to earn and found opportunities greater than they could have imagined. Consequently, they were much better off than their non-working friends. Self-reliance wins again. The principle of paying tithing, saving for missions, and general savings were continued on money our children earned as they grew older. What they found was that their savings grew proportionately to their increased earnings, and it was so much easier to save up for things they wanted to buy. As children get older, their needs and wants increase, so the timing for learning to work for money at age 13 could not be more perfect. At the same time that they are learning to earn their own spending money, they are also learning valuable lessons in thrift, self-reliance, and self-respect. They learned early that you will always have more money when you stop taking handouts. There are still many adults who have never learned this lesson. Gullible Goals. The following story illustrates the importance of the principle of self-reliance. It was published in the Reader's Digest magazine. In our friendly neighbor city of St. Augustine, great flocks of seagulls are starving amid plenty. Fishing is still good, but the gulls do not know how to fish. For generations, they have depended on the shrimp fleet to toss them scraps from the nets. Now the fleet has moved. The shrimpers had created a welfare state for the seagulls. The big birds never bothered to learn how to fish for themselves, and they never taught their children to fish. Instead, they led their little ones to the shrimp nets. Now the seagulls, the fine free birds that almost symbolize liberty itself, are starving to death because they gave in to the something-for-nothing lure. 
They sacrifice their independence for a handout. A lot of people are like that too. They see nothing wrong in picking delectable scraps from the tax nets of the U.S. government's shrimp fleet. But what will happen when the government runs out of goods? What about our children of generations to come? Let us not be gullible goals. We must preserve our talents of self-sufficiency, our genius for creating things for ourselves, our sense of thrift, and our true love of independence. We need to learn this lesson ourselves and teach our children to be independent from government handouts when we could otherwise provide for ourselves, whether or not we might be entitled. It is a long and slippery slope once you open that door and you will not like what is at the bottom. Never broke. Here is more outside the sandbox thinking when it comes to teaching children about savings. Our children were able to save up their money and buy whatever they wanted without ever being completely broke afterward due to an ingenious system of matching funds. I think it is a pretty common practice for parents to help out their children on major purchases. We decided to pay half on anything that was approved in advance, but here's the significant difference. We paid half only after the child saved the whole amount themselves. For example, if a child wants to buy a bike for $100, he saves the entire 100 but when you go with him to buy the new bike, you pay half of the cost so the child still has $50 left over. This accomplishes two things. It teaches the child what it takes in time and energy to really save the entire amount for the things they want instead of just needing to save half. But when our matching funds were applied, they still had half their money left to start saving for the next item. So they were never broke after a major purchase. They also appreciated our help more since our bonus really ended up in their pockets. By never being completely broke, they were always saving the second half for the next thing they wanted, which is always easier to achieve if you have a running start on your goal. In this scenario, the child still only has to earn half in reality, but they are always filling the second half of the glass instead of the first half. There will always be the lessons you can teach if you watch for them. Plan for rainy days. When I was about nine years old, my dad took me on an overnight father and son's outing that I will never forget. During World War II, he had been a first sergeant responsible for provisioning a machine gun company. In the islands of the South Pacific, it rains nearly every day, so whenever my dad's outfit set up camp, they always prepared for rain. We arrived at the designated site in the early evening and proceeded to set up camp. There was no rain in the forecast for the night in question, but that did not matter to my dad. He said to me, If you always prepare for rain, you will be ready when it comes. In those days, tents were not made of nylon with fiberglass poles. They were army style, heavy canvas anchored with tent stakes suspended via wooden poles attached to ropes and a dirt floor. So after setting up our tent away from the natural watersheds, we dug a trench all the way around the tent to channel the water away from us. The others in our group laughed at us, calling the trench overkill since there was not a cloud in the sky and no rain forecast. Well, you can probably guess what happened. That night, there was a torrential downpour. Our preparations kept us nice and dry in our tent, and the mockers were washed out. Having personal savings is just like digging that trench. Even your children will experience financial rainy days, and if you have taught them to save, they will be able to weather the storms. Knowing that you are putting aside part of every paycheck toward your own family rainy day emergencies will be the example that they will need in order to establish a habit of savings. Looking back, I can see that even as a teenager, I always had savings. I did not buy things just because I had money in my pocket. Unless I had an immediate need, I saved my money. I had a couple of friends who seemed to always be broke, and I know that their parents ran out of money from time to time as well. I am fortunate that my parents were such good examples to me. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6. 
Financial storms will come. If you prepare, you will be ready. Those who have trouble keeping their sauce on the crest with no reserve funds will be washed out. A disciplined approach to savings will reap immediate and lasting blessings for yourself and your posterity. And as you will see in chapter 14, Retiring Without Permission, beginning to save early in life is the best way to be prepared to plant money trees when the time is right. Saving for Education Our family's focus from the time our children were small was to save for their missions, reasoning that a mission was a goal that a younger child could relate to easier than saving for college, which seems much more boring. Nevertheless, higher education is also a worthwhile goal that requires savings and sacrifice. We ruled out expensive colleges unless our children were able to get a scholarship to pay the higher cost of tuition. All of our children opted for a quality education at BYU for their undergraduate degrees, and all of them actually graduated from BYU, including those who married before graduation. Compared to other private universities, BYU is very reasonably priced. Another worthwhile reason to pay your tithing. My parents had 29 grandchildren, but they were willing to help financially for every grandchild to attend a reasonably priced college. After the child saved a third of the cost through their own efforts at work or a scholarship and his parents paid a third, then grandpa would contribute the final third. Grandpa offered similar help for missions, but instead of paying a third of the cost each month, he elected to pay 100% of the cost of the final eight months after the child's third and the parent's third were expended. See Ho to the end of the row in chapter 7, Sufficient for Your Needs versus Rich, Roy's Recipe. Understandably, not everyone has a grandpa able or willing to do the same, but it really does not matter. The principle still applies perfectly between parent and child if each is contributing half instead of a third of the cost. We began saving our share of the cost of our children's mission and missions and education from the time they were born. We figured out how much would be the likely cost how much we would have to save each month to meet the goal, and we made it happen. It is not difficult to save if you are able to keep your sauce down to a reasonable percentage so you can actually do worthwhile things with what is left. Our decision to retire early while we still had two children in high school was not a problem since we had been saving their whole lives. Our share of their education and missions was already in the bank. For our children's portion of their education expense after they had completed their mission savings, which most did early, they began putting money aside for college. I am a firm believer in young people working full-time at a summer job to earn money for college. If they were successful enough at earning money from their summer jobs, they would not have to work during the school year. But most of them opted for part-time jobs during the school year also to accommodate extra spending money for dating, cars, iPods, computers, shall I go on? If a child chooses a reasonably priced college and is willing to work hard, he can get through undergraduate school without taking out student loans. We elected to only help our children financially with the first four years of college. If they opted for an advanced degree, they were on their own to make that happen. By the time a child has served a mission and graduated from college, he is well prepared to take on that additional challenge if desired. Pig Me Too I was about 14 years old before I figured out that celebrating Labor Day did not mean working all day on our five acres with my dad. As youngsters, we had chores we had to accomplish every Saturday before we could play, and the older kids always helped my dad with whatever projects he was working on. But Labor Day was a special day that dad stayed home from his regular employment so that he could work with his kids. I really thought that is what the holiday was all about, rather than celebrating organized labor unions. I like my version better. Children need to learn the value of work, which is best taught in the home. 
One of Richard Scarry's books, Pig Will and Pig Won't, became a family favorite when we were raising our own children. In this delightful children's story, there are two pigs named, you guessed it, Pig Will and Pig Won't. Pig Will was cooperative when his parents asked him to do things, but Pig Won't was contrary unless it was his idea. One day, when asked if they wanted to run errands with Papa Pig, Pig Will said as usual, I will, and Pig Won't said, I won't. So Pig Will had a wonderful day working with Papa Pig, and Pig Won't sat home all alone and had a miserable day. The next time they were asked to do something, Pig Will said, I will. And this time, Pig Won't said, me too. That was the origin of the phrase that became synonymous with Saturday chores for our children. We called their tasks Pig Me Too, and everyone knew they had to get to work. It is important to teach your children the gospel of work. Some parents think that childhood should be carefree and full of fun and adventure. There is certainly time for those things, but children who do not learn the value of work while in their youth will likely grow up to be adults who are not prepared to shoulder responsibility. You may know some adult pig won'ts. Big R. Teaching your children to drive is one of the joys of raising teenagers. If you were to ask any of our children what big R means, they would probably roll their eyes and say they could not drive a car until they were big R responsible. That means responsible with a capital R. Translation. Responsibility means simply that you do what you say you are going to do when you say you are going to do it. Since most teens are altogether too anxious to get their driver's license, we use the big R standard to determine when they were actually ready to drive rather than just turning chronologically 16 years of age. Driving is serious business, and this privilege should not be granted to an irresponsible youth who might just happen to be old enough according to the law. In addition to paying for their own insurance, each of our children preparing to get their license had to save up a crash fund which was equal to the amount of our collision deductible. While we had teenage drivers in the home, I lowered our deductible to $500, and I was custodian of their crash funds. This was motivation to them to drive more carefully since they would get their crash fund back after they were no longer driving our vehicles, assuming they did not have an accident. If they did have an accident, the deductible was already paid. Insurance was described as a faucet that once turned on can never be turned off. Paying for that insurance themselves as a prerequisite to getting their licenses made it a less enticing morsel. Most of our children started driving at age 17. We survived six children learning to drive with only two cars totaled, no fatalities, and only minor injuries. It does not get much better than that for parents. The wheels on the bus go round and round. By the time a child is old enough to drive, many parents are all too willing to let their enthusiastic teen driver take over the constant shuttling of children back and forth to and from a never-ending parade of activities. This errand, running, if not monitored, can evolve into the new teen chauffeur pretty much taking over the hand-me-down family car. If you really want to train your children properly about finances, they need to understand the true costs of mobility. My father, being the accountant that he was, added up all of the expenses of operating the family's vehicles and determined that it cost approximately 10 cents per mile to operate a car. This is circa 1965 when gas was 29 cents a gallon. Consequently, whenever his teen drivers wanted to take one of his vehicles to work or on a date or personal errand, they had to keep track of the mileage and pay my dad the going rate for every mile. My three older siblings grumbled a bit but paid the piper. When I became old enough to get my license, I challenged the status quo. I had a habit of questioning everything that has not really changed much, so I asked permission to audit the books. I could not believe it really cost 10 cents per mile, and I wanted to find out why. 
My father was more than willing to cooperate and gave me access to all the figures he had used to calculate the rate. To my delight, I discovered that an error had been made. He had counted the cost of insurance and the total operating costs, and we were each already paying our own insurance separately in order to be able to drive at all. So from that day forward, after backing out the extra insurance charge, the new rate was $0.08 per mile, and I do not think any of my siblings ever thanked me for that one. Now, $0.08 a mile does not sound like much, but when you are only earning $1.25 an hour, it adds up quickly. I was sure I could operate a vehicle for less, and so after about a year of paying to use the family vehicles, I proposed a wager. My dad was always game for what he considered to be a sure thing, so I wagered him that I could operate a car for less than a nickel a mile. There were no stakes on this bet other than the fact that in order to test my theory, I would have to get my own car, which was the true motivation. So in 1967, at 17 years of age, I bought my first automobile for $20, a 1954 Ford sedan with about 100,000 miles on it. After making my purchase, I had to jumpstart the old Ford, but it ran and I drove my new beauty home. Let the contest begin. For the next year, my adventure in auto mechanics occupied much of my time and interest. For the record, I won the bet. If you did not count my time to fix or repair daily, the actual out-of-pocket cost for my total year of driving was less than a nickel a mile, including the cost of the vehicle. The lessons I learned that year really paid off handsomely later on when I was able to perform many of my own repairs on all my future vehicles as a result of conquering those early mechanical challenges. For our own children, we had to adjust the costs to actual when they were driving in the 1990s and it was closer to 25 cents per mile out of pocket. And that was with my doing most of the repairs and service. Even so, our three oldest children followed a similar pattern. They did not like paying dad to use the family car, so each one of them bought their own cars. We did not need to have a contest. Each one of them found out firsthand the true cost of having a Jeep parked in the driveway. When your child wants to run to the mall to buy a new t-shirt, he needs to know that it costs $3 to get there and back and that the travel cost factors into the price of the shirt. If he does not think in those terms, he will not learn to organize his errands to do as many as possible on the same trip. The Little Red Hen Everyone has heard the popular children's fable called The Little Red Hen. Some modern versions of the story have tried to change the original intent of the folktale to make things more fair for the other farm animals, welfare animals who refused to assist the little red hen when asked to help with the various tasks related to making bread, until the bread was ready to eat. Then they were very interested in being involved. This is a parable. It is not about being fair. It is about the law of the harvest. We reap what we sow. Children need to gain respect for the consequences that follow their choices and actions to prepare them for the real world where life is not always fair. By learning the gospel of work, they will gain an appreciation for the reward that their labor provides. In school, children make choices every day about which assignments get completed, how long they choose to study for an upcoming test, or how long they talk to their friends on the phone instead of studying. These choices are subsequently translated into grades and ultimately a report card. That report card, while perhaps not a perfect system, is at least an indication of how well the child has applied himself that semester. It is the harvest for the seeds they have sown while in school. When a child gets behind the wheel of a car, he is responsible to drive safely, obey traffic laws, and avoid accidents. That does not always happen, just ask any parent of a teen driver. I think it is a good idea to let the weight of tickets and accidents rest upon the careless driver, including the increase in the family's insurance cost. When I was a teen in my parents' household, any child involved in an accident lost their driving privileges for 90 days. If we rescue children from the results of their own choices or we excuse the inattention that caused an accident, 
They will expect to be rescued as adults and will become part of an ever-increasing dependent population. See Gullible Goals above. Sacrifice? It's no sacrifice. If you control your own destiny, you get to choose where you allocate resources to accomplish your short and long-range goals while providing your family an acceptable standard of living. As I mentioned previously, these voluntarily imposed controls can be used to artificially limit the funds available to your family budget and allow you to voluntarily live not only within but well below your means, including requiring sacrifice from your children as a necessary gospel-centered lesson. The parents of many of your children's friends will be more inclined to spoil their children because they do not keep the larger view in the foreground. This will be something you will learn to deal with as your children are taught their own lessons about keeping up with the Joneses. One of our daughters was very musical and improved her talent by auditioning for and being accepted into an exclusive high school singing group. We helped her with the wardrobe requirements but felt the group's plan to go to New York from Utah for a weekend to perform in Carnegie Hall was excessive. Even though it was a lot of money, she wanted to go, so we let her make the decision, which included paying for half the trip herself. See, never broke above. I'm fairly certain that most of her friends did not have to pay their own way, but I can assure you that due to the personal sacrifice on her part, she appreciated the trip much more than they. Sharing the house and the family budget with five other siblings was a great introduction to sacrifice for our children. Yet while they were growing up, we also took in several foster children that became part of our family for a time. Hosting children with special needs necessarily required sacrifice from each of our natural children because the new child often needed more than their share of time and attention from mom and dad. Each time we became aware of someone that might need to join us for a while, we presented it to the family council. Our children were extremely supportive, collectively and individually. They each learned from their own experience the blessings that come from helping those in need. When we sacrifice, we give up something we value for something better. In that sense, it is really no sacrifice at all. The Lord often asks us to sacrifice, but in return, he pours out more blessings upon us. Thus we are and will forever be in his debt. Sacrifice is the second law of heaven and as such should be high on the family curriculum. If children do not learn to sacrifice in their youth, they will be less inclined as adults to do so. Do not be too eager to rescue them from obstacles they will surely encounter or they could miss opportunities to learn valuable lessons in sacrifice. They will be stronger, more faithful, and more thankful as a result.